From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. I've heard a lot of conspiracy theories during my time in Russia and the region. One of my favorites is Vladimir Putin's claim that the CIA created the Internet. And I remember very well being in Moscow in 2014 and reporting on Malaysian flight MH17 that was shot down over Ukraine by a Russian Buk surface-to-air missile killing all the passengers and crew. The Russian government unleashed a torrent of theories, some of them contradicting each other, including the one that Ukraine was trying to assassinate Vladimir Putin. So that's why I was very happy to see the new book by Scott Radnitz, Associate Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies at the University of Washington. Okay, Scott Radnitz, it's great to have you on. And I have your book, in fact, right in my hands, hot off the press, Revealing Schemes, the Politics of Conspiracy in Russia and the Post-Soviet Region. So welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Joe. Scott, I remember way back when I was in Seattle, when you were mulling over this idea and thinking about we both know that part of the world is rife and always has been with conspiracy theories, but you're formulating the idea of this. And as I read it, I see that the germ of the idea began when you were talking to a Kyrgyzstan taxi driver. Yeah, well, the personal origins of the idea came from my experiences in the region when I was a graduate student doing research in post-Soviet Central Asia. And as is typical for Americans who spent time in many other countries, not just in the post-Soviet region, but elsewhere, it's just typical to come across conspiracy theories on the street, in taxis, at the bazaar. There was another moment when I was staying with a host family in Kyrgyzstan, and they were watching TV, Russian TV, as many people in Kyrgyzstan do, and they were watching this very slick, scientific-looking documentary in Russian about how the moon landing was faked. And this family was very well educated and knowledgeable, and they believed it. They took it very seriously. And I remember talking to them and thinking, well, that's kind of strange that they would believe that. And this was a documentary that was airing in prime time. So lots of people were watching it. That's just one of lots of instances in which I came across this phenomenon in which conspiracy theories were taken seriously by smart people. So that planted the seed for an important research project to take on when I was ready for it. And then the other motivation was just the observation that conspiracy theories were not just a fringe belief that some strange and unusual people tended to spread, but that they were actually a pretty common political rhetoric that people in power used on a regular basis. Now, this wasn't the case in the U.S. until pretty recently – although it was earlier during the Cold War. However, in other countries, in much of the world, in fact, it's normal to see powerful elected or unelected leaders to use conspiracy theories as political rhetoric in the daily course of business. And this was something that even though it was pretty evident to people who've traveled around and observed politics in other countries, that American political scientists hadn't really caught on to yet. This is, say, mid-2010s. And it's partly because in the U.S. and other Western countries, Western democracies, it was still not a very 
common phenomena. And so it hadn't really caught on. So I wanted to look at conspiracy theories as political rhetoric to try to figure out some of the patterns and some of the causes of this, why it tends to proliferate at some times and not others and in some countries and not others. I had the Wizard of Oz idea being this kind of autocratic ruler who invents these theories and then pulls the strings and tells people what to think. And it's very rational and organized and then sometimes irrational. But there's somebody behind the scenes pulling strings. And what you're saying is – and I'll read this – the wielders of conspiracism, which I think is a great word, <laughs> far from being master manipulators, are most likely to enter the fray in moments of uncertainty and threat. So tell me about that. What does that mean? It's a common belief that when conspiracy theories are used by those in power, they are most often used by dictators. Some of the most notorious conspiracy theorists in power were also some of the most repressive dictators. Stalin comes to mind. So there's this idea out there that people with unbridled power who have complete control over the media use conspiracy theories to maintain this power through distraction, by fulminating against enemies, in a way that keeps the population docile, always on edge, and therefore loyal to the leader who's going to protect them. So this idea is out there. But what I wanted to show in this book, and I have some data to prove this, is that there's more than one path to widespread conspiracism, let's say. But the more common path is that people contending for power or people who are in power but have to face challenges, have to face oppositions, they also have good reasons to use conspiracy theories. So in the course of defending their position, conspiracy theories are useful because it's a way for them to tear down their adversaries. It's a way to discredit them by linking them to disliked and unsavory characters, whether inside or outside the country. And by accusing these people of horrible things, this is a way of building support for yourself in the course of regular political competition. So it's not necessarily unbridled autocracy that provides the strongest incentives for conspiracism. It's actually regular old-fashioned political competition in which elections are somewhat free or fair and in which there's a media out there that gives access to oppositions that leads then to this dynamic in which both sides, the incumbent and the competitors, the challengers, have incentives to use the harshest, most provocative, controversial rhetoric in order to build political support by tearing down their adversaries. There's a word that you used in here, and it's signaling. So what you say is that the decision to deploy a conspiracy theory may be intended not to convince people that the substance of the claim is true, in other words, to persuade, but rather to send a signal. And that this reveals information about that political actor. Maybe he doesn't mean for his words to be taken literally, you say. He's just sending a signal that he's authentic and he wants to disregard conventional expectations. This reminds me of QAnon very much. The leader knows there's a plot brewing, so he's going to protect his people and also warn them indirectly there could be more of this. So this brings to mind 
the popular quip that Donald Trump was meant to be taken seriously, but not literally. That is, his rhetoric was designed to send messages about what kind of politician he is, what kinds of people he would advocate for, but that you weren't necessarily supposed to take his words verbatim. So the argument that I'm making is that one kind of signaling has to do with that. It's a way for politicians to let people know through their rhetoric that they're not like the other guys. They're not conventional, boring, policy-focused politicians. Instead, they're people who are willing to buck convention, who are willing to go against the mainstream and represent people who resent the mainstream, who feel left out of the political system. This is very common, not just in the U.S., but in lots of Western democracies, especially where there are fringe parties that can get into parliament by winning, say, 10 or 20 percent of the vote. The other argument I'm making about signaling is that conspiracy claims are a way for people in power to demonstrate their power. To be able to name a conspiracy, that is, to name who is the perpetrator doing this thing in secret, in order to do that, you have to have access to hidden information. And if you're in government, you have access to intelligence. So you can say things like, I happen to know for a fact that the CIA is secretly supporting Navalny or Golas, an organization that's been closed down now, but that used to do independent election monitoring in Russia. So for people in power to be able to name the bad guys is a way for them to show actually that they still have power, that they're snugly in control and what looks like a major challenge on the street, what looks like something that might actually demonstrate their weakness, they can flip it around and say, actually, I know what's going on here. And because I know I can take concrete measures to address this threat and therefore maintain my power. There's a thing that you mention about contradictory information, and I'm teaching a course at Georgetown in disinformation, so this immediately caught my attention, about it doesn't have to be a set piece, very organized set piece. It can be a bunch of contradictory information flooding the zone, as you say, in order to spread this conspiracy theory. That's a little bit different. I know it's happened before, but it feels more modern, this idea of I'm not going to convince you, I'm just going to confuse you. This is a tactic that I think the Russian government figured out through trial and error. So one thing I do in the book is trace Russia's evolution into now this regime of where conspiracy theories are normal, not just normal, but they saturate the airwaves and now they saturate social media. And Russia came to this gradually. Again, it wasn't this deliberate strategy by Putin plotting with his advisors one day to say, OK, now we're going to use conspiracy theory in order to dazzle the population and maintain control forever. It was something that came to trying different media strategies and eventually realizing that there are certain benefits to keeping a drumbeat of sustained conspiracy claims running through the state-controlled media and eventually through social media. And then another strategy that they happened upon was this notion of just putting out lots of information, some of which you would qualify as classical conspiracy theories, other just misinformation, just information that happens not to be true or is of dubious veracity. But the point is, to put out lots of information, 
which makes it difficult for people to assemble the facts that they might need in order to understand what's really going on. And the idea is that people, therefore, are unable to come to the truth and get confused. In social science, there hasn't been a lot of evidence to show that it actually works as intended. That is, if people are inundated with information, does it really demobilize them? Does it actually lead them to doubt credible sources of information? Or do people who really want to discover what's going on have means to do so? Because the other side of having access to all this inundation of information is that people do have the means now to seek out the truth if they really want to find it. It takes extra effort, and most people aren't willing to put in the effort. But when people are faced with this challenge that they don't know how to assess the facts, they have the means of getting closer to the truth through credible sources that are widely available to everybody now. Let's get some examples. One that I was really struck by, because I actually covered this story when I was in Moscow, was Beslan and the attack in 2004 against a school in the south of Russia. And what was it, 300 and some children and parents were killed, primarily mothers, 334 children. And it was a particularly brutal terrorist attack. It was pandemonium, a bloodbath, as terrified, half-naked children and their parents ran from the building. The terrorists opened fire, shooting them in the back. Beslan happened at a particularly fraught time in Russia and in the Putin presidency. If you recall, it's been a while now. It's now almost 20 years. But Russia faced a series of terrorist attacks from militants in the North Caucasus, not only from Chechnya, but also in the regions around Chechnya. There was this hostage-taking of the theater in 2002. There were several airliners that were bombed and blown up. And this seemed to contradict Putin's claims that the situation in the North Caucasus was now under control. So the Putin regime started to feel a little bit concerned and anxious that these events that were happening outside of its control we're really undermining its claim to be restoring stability and reestablishing the supremacy of the state. So then Beslan happens, and this is also a time when relations with the U.S. are somewhat on the rocks. So this major attack happens, killing all of these children on the first day of school, and the Kremlin's response this time is a little bit different. It's not simply about the people who carried out this horrific attack. Instead, Putin subtly links this attack to the U.S., to the idea that other countries want to weaken Russia, and to some extent to events that are happening in Georgia in which there's a lot of dissatisfaction with Russia and some of the militants might have received shelter in the Bakisi Gorge of Georgia, Georgia, which was becoming an American ally. So all these things are happening at the same time. So Putin makes this claim indirectly that this attack was not just militants against the Russian state. Instead, it was an international plot in which outsiders, whom he doesn't name at the moment, are providing support for these militants as a way to get to Russia through its soft underbelly in the North Caucasus. And that is the turning point. I want to break in there because why doesn't he come out and just say, hey, it was the CIA? Or why is it indirect? It's hard to know in any given instance what they're thinking and how Putin or his speechwriters decide what to say. At that moment, American relations with Russia 
were still viable, although there had been some incidents that had weakened the relationship. I don't think the Kremlin at the time wanted to come right out and make this would have been really a vivid and shocking accusation to say that the U.S. was responsible. It would have been very bad for diplomacy. But instead, by doing this, they paved the way for additional claims that are seeding this narrative that the West, which is said to be threatened by a strong Russia, is now merging with this internal threat. And I don't think they had a plan all along to make this a dominant narrative. I think it happened gradually, and I think it was mostly reactive. But little by little, once the kernel of this narrative was put out there, not only Putin, but other people around him, his media advisors, his political technologists, gradually wove together this larger narrative that made sense, given what Russia was facing. And then the Orange Revolution happens late 2004 into 2005. And now the narrative becomes more well-established and it continues in various forms. Mm-hmm. And it also protects Putin to a certain extent from blame for that. If it's outside forces, now he is a leader and he must defend the country. And it's not that he is failing domestically to protect his own people. So there is payoff there too. This gets to my point about signaling. At a moment when there might have been a perception that Putin's government is on the rocks, not really in control of things, and there might have been some public doubt about whether he's the real thing, it's a way for Putin to demonstrate that he gets what's going on. He might not be able to solve this problem of domestic terrorism or the U.S. helping states on Russia's borders, but through these claims, Putin is able, Putin and his advisors, the Kremlin as a whole, able to demonstrate that they get what's going on. And If there's another event that the Kremlin doesn't anticipate that also seems to challenge its authority, it can say, well, look, we told you this is happening. Here's another one of these events that we told you was going to happen. It's a way for them to use rhetoric to put out the semblance of control without having actual control. And you've said that Russia is not the only place, or even former Soviet space, is not the only place where this happens, that it's happening now in democracies and basically every country you can name. So let's look at what are the dangers, would you say, for democracies when this type of conspiracy theory environment takes off? I would argue that First and foremost, conspiracy theories are a symptom rather than a cause. Conspiracy theories tend to proliferate in societies where there is a lot of distrust in authorities. They tend to proliferate where the government actually does abuse and exploit its people, hence their popularity in places like the post-Soviet region, the Middle East, South Asia. So a society in which conspiracy theories become widely believed and also used by politicians is a country where people have defensible grounds for distrusting the way the system works. So there are underlying factors that go deeper than just people believing what appear like crazy things. So there's also a danger that once conspiracy theories start to work, once politicians realize that, hey, I'm winning votes this way. I'm distinguishing myself from my political opponents and I'm getting people mobilized and excited now because they hear me using this different kind of rhetoric that shows my authenticity. It 
might establish its own equilibrium in which conspiracy theories become not just a tactic that works once or twice, but actually people might start to see this as the game itself. If someone lobs a conspiracy theory against me, I'll just lob one right back. This is the case in some of the countries that were included in my book, the more competitive semi-democracies like Ukraine and Georgia and Kyrgyzstan. This is the case in a lot of rough-and-tumble democracies around the world. I don't think this is the dynamic right now in the U.S. because conspiracy theories promoted by politicians tend to be on one side, that is in the Republican Party. The Democratic Party has not used this as a strategy as much. So there is a tendency for conspiracy theory sometimes to create its own momentum. I don't think that's happening in the U.S. right now, although there are other reasons to be concerned by what's going on in the U.S. right now. All right. Well, Scott Radnitz, that was really fascinating. And I urge people to get your book, not only because I think it has a lot of really concrete information, but I think the way you approach it is different. And you make some very interesting points, not only for the area that we're interested in, the region of the world, but also for the United States and other countries in the West. So thank you very much. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.